This is Mia Farrelletto. Welcome to the New Observations podcast. We have a very special treat today. Um, we have the author and journalist Ed Conroy here to discuss his book uh, from 1989, Report on Communion, the facts behind the most controversial true story of our time. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Mia. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, and I know our audience will be very excited um, to hear you share all of your Whitley Strieber uh, <laughs> research and information. It's wonderful. Thank you. So, um, so tell us, how, how did you get interested in communion? I first got wind of communion when I was handed a galley copy of the book by my friend Dennis Stacy, publisher of Anomalist Books, who at that time was the editor of the MUFON Journal, Mutual UFO Network Journal. And um, I was uh, at a MUFON meeting and had gone to hear a, an English UFO researcher speak. After the meeting, he came up to me and suggested that I might like to do an article about Whitley and his book. I politely declined that because at the time, I was an arts journalist for the Express News, and my bailiwick was the world of the performing arts and literature. And um, although I was um, open-minded about the UFO phenomenon, and in fact had seen a UFO at the age of 12 over San Antonio, which had a profound impact on me, um, I was very um, reticent to go publicly into this area. However, um, I happened to notice that Whitley had written a couple of books that looked pretty interesting from a political point of view, and I'm speaking of Nature's End and War Day, which were mass market paperbacks that were that did very well for him, and they were they were very intriguing because um, Nature's End is a novel that takes place in the year 2020 or 2025. Uh, when the Amazon has burned up and the world is facing a global economic, social population existential crisis. And um, the other one, War Day, was written during the time when there was a game of brinksmanship being played between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, Ronald Reagan was placing Pershing missiles into West Germany, still was a West Germany back then, and was um, pointing them towards the Soviet Union, which had been massing tank divisions along its western border. And, you know, people were talking blithely about, quote, limited, unquote, nuclear war. 
there were a whole bunch of um, films that came out, um, you know, protesting that whole idea that and 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 Whitley's uh, book, which he co-wrote with James Konetka, his uh, longtime friend, uh, took the form of a travelogue that these two guys took across the United States after a limited nuclear war, which, of course, was a disaster. And, um, you know, including the complete flattening of San Antonio, Texas, where I happen to live, where, where Whitley's from, you know, a sheet of, 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 of glass because of all of the hydrogen bombs that had been detonated over it. So um, I was impressed with these, and particularly with the Nature's End book, because, um, you know, this is somebody talking about global warming back in 1984. So then I had seen The Hunger, the film that was made of The Hunger, and so I was familiar with that, and uh, with Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon, and I, um, so I decided to read that book, and I was impressed with it. Um, the writing was excellent, and it wasn't just your typical, um, you know, gothic horror novel. Um, and so I, I went on a Strieber reading project. I read everything that had been published by him up until that time, all his novels. And um, I decided that um, on the basis of that, that I had to do the profile because I saw a complex mind that was interested in looking beyond the appearances of life and trying to find out what goes on in the shadows and, um, and talking about it. And, and with a profound sense of the urgency for the development of our consciousness in this time because we are facing the possible extinction of humanity. So, yeah, I mean, like, how could I not? Plus, he was from San Antonio. So, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's your a hometown. Home yeah. My yeah. Hometown. So, yeah. So I went to my editor at Express News, Roger Downing. And I pitched this story, and I'm very grateful for the fact that Roger immediately said yes. I didn't have to convince him at all. And um, so I did an interview with Whitley that was published in the Express News um, Sunday edition, front page of the art section. Um, we used to have an actual art section back then. And, um, uh, you know, it, it was the main article that Sunday, and it told the story of, the publication of communion, which happened on that particular day to hit number one on the New York times, best nonfiction bestseller list. And people always said to me, is this a fiction or a nonfiction book? You know? and, and some people thought it was like um, religious, you know, cause it had that, that word communion in it. And, um, and I used to joke that, that, you know, in, in the film reds, you know, that, Warren Beatty, who's playing John Reed, the journalist, is, is sitting at his family dinner table back in Portland, and this elderly gentleman asks him what he's doing in Greenwich Village, and he says, oh, I'm editing a magazine called The Masses, and he says, oh, is that a Catholic publication? <laughs> I remember that scene, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a great scene? So I sort of felt like that when people would ask me about, you know, communion, you know, is this a religious book? And it was 
not a religious book, but it was certainly a very spiritual book, a spiritual with tremendous, a book with tremendous spiritual implications. And so um, many spiritual questions, shall we say. Um, so I, I delved, you know, deeply into uh, Whitley and he gave me a great interview and um, the article, this feature profile um, got a tremendous amount of response. So I realized that this guy had a story that had legs and I began thinking that I would do like a feature profile for the New Yorker, you know, uh, which was something I'd always wanted to do as a, as an ambition as a young writer. I was in my thirties at the time. Um, and, uh, but then I realized after I saw him going on Larry King and Phil Donahue and like he got Larry King to shut up and listen to him for a long period of time and then slowly ask him his next question. He blew away Larry King and that wasn't an easy thing to do. So Whitley had this very compelling story and a very compelling voice. And I realized that it had to be a book. So, um, to my great satisfaction, Whitley, um, and I talked about that and, um, we, we agreed. And, uh, he, uh, he opened his life to me. Um, Mia, he, he, he just was incredibly, uh, willing to, um, engage in this process of inquiry because he recognized that so many things that happened to him that were so extraordinary when he was younger that he didn't even remember them all. And he wasn't even sure. The thing I remember that I respected about Whitley is that he, he was very, he was very sure about the things that had happened to him recently. Uh, but he had a lot of questions about the things that had happened to him when he was a boy, um, because of the time and, um, and the dreamlike quality of them. So he agreed not to contact a lot of his old childhood friends with whom he had had extraordinary experiences or who had, who, or who knew of things that he had said and didn't interfere. So I went to a number of people who had known him in the past before he talked to them at all about what he was doing. And that was very helpful. So, so that's how the, I got the ball rolling. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I respect so much about Whitley is his desire for external confirmation. Mm-hmm. And he, 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 like, unlike so many other people, um, is willing to go there and, you know, put it under the microscope, put his experience under the microscope and allow um, his experiences to be scrutinized and we really need to be able to do more of that. Yes, I agree. And, um, and, and I should say that, um, what he was doing rhetorically in writing communion as he did was to the best of my knowledge in terms of a first person narrative, unprecedented, And and I have some basis for saying that because as a result of having seen a UFO over San Antonio when I was 12, I had surreptitiously, this, by the way, I, I had made the decision when I saw it not to tell anybody about it. I didn't tell my mother, father, you know, sister, 
anybody, any of my friends at school, anything about it because um, it was so extraordinary. And fr- quite frankly, I, I, I really believed I wouldn't be be- believed and I just didn't want to get into that with people. So I, I immediately started reading a lot of science fiction, but then I also had read George Adamski, you know, flying saucers have landed. I let, I read some of the contact T literature that had come out, you know, the space brothers stuff. And, um, and I was quite, um, you know, I was never satisfied, you know, with that because it, it all seems so pulpy, you know, I mean, like that was the age of amazing stories, you know, and, 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 and so, um, you know, and I'm, so I'm not going to get into the issue of whether, you know, Adamski was real or he was a CIA agent or, or whatever. It, it, it's just that the, there was this, you know, there wasn't a lot of great literature, let's just say, about the UFO phenomenon. I was aware at the time also that Whitley's book had been preceded by the book Intruders by Bud Hopkins. And um, Bud Hopkins was a a noted American abstract expressionist whose work has been exhibited and may still be in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, He was... um, you know, a prominent, well-known artist, but he got into being um, an independent investigator of what he called, quote, alien abduction, unquote. And he also invented the term missing time. He had another book called Missing Time. And um, uh, Ralph Blumenthal, in his new biography of um, of John Mack, Dr. John, John Mack, Mack, who... Yeah, who got into this all through meeting Bud Hopkins gives a pretty good overview of of who Hopkins was and the milieu in which he worked and so forth. And in fact, Whitley early on contacted you know him because well they both lived in the village in New York, you know, and and it wasn't that hard to go over. And so he he became familiar with what bud was doing which was hypnotizing people he was a self-taught hypnotist as i understand it and um he you know was producing these narratives out of people and he had a lot of letters from people which um which were in time a counterpoint to what whitley was doing um because interestingly enough when whitley wrote his account he completely uh, refused to use the term aliens. He used the term visitors instead. And um, he tried to give an account that was, shall we say, phenomenal, phenomenological. I'm not saying that he read Husserl or Merleau-Ponty in college. Um, I did. Uh, and I'm not sure if he is familiar with like phenomenological methodology, but he was really trying to provide you know, um, an extraordinary account, uh, an account that was honest of the phenomena that he experienced and, uh, and the transformations that he, you know, went through. And, and of course, it's not a pretty picture. I mean, he was essentially raped, you know, he was abducted and raped, and then he suffered, you know, extreme trauma. Something penetrated the back of his neck which was really, really weird because in one of his um, uh, novels, there is a, an incident uh, in which 
some secret agents penetrate the back of, uh, you know, the back of the neck of someone with a golden needle. And in fact, I began noticing that there were all of these resonances between what was happening in Whitley's account in communion and things that he had described essentially in both uh, the hunger and the wolf. And in other words, highly intelligent, extraordinary, more than human or a human beings who come in the middle of the night and do with people as they will. And um, so I had to ask myself, as I wrote in the book, you know, was Whitley constructing one of the most elaborate literary hoaxes of our time? Or was he finally encountering the beings who were the inspiration for all of his earlier works in face-to-face in horror, amazement, and awe, as I put it in the book. So I weighed that question a lot, Mia. Well, this is our first commercial break, and we'll be right back to explore that in more depth. So hang on to your seats. Welcome back to the show. That is a very interesting um, point, Ed, and I think all of our lives, to some extent, are reflections of the ideas and the thoughts that then, you know, are sent out and come back in real life form. Yeah. Um, you know, in much the same way that Slumdog Millionaire, you know, the the Danny Boyle film that Great the film. main character had all the answers, you know, <laughs> to win the million dollars or whatever it was. His life just was a composite of all of these experiences that came to. Yes. Uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful example. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and Whitley's life is, you know, as I began to um, inquire uh, into it, you know, I found myself um, sort of like, how shall I say, you know, swept up by a current of energy um, and guided by intelligences, um, some of whom made themselves known to me in my apartment in the casino club building in San Antonio downtown, apartment 604, uh, where, um, you know, Mr. Haley had written Roots, I found out. Alex Haley. <laughs> yeah, so Alex Haley wrote Roots in the same apartment I rented to write my book. And, and the reason why I rented that apartment, it was a tiny apartment, and all I could do in it was write. <laughs> so, that is anyway. so funny. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You can't so make this these... stuff up. You really can't. <laughs> no, I know. It was incredible. So I had, um, uh, so yeah, I began having these experiences at 3.33 a.m. or 4 a.m. with beings of different kinds who came into my room, sort of let me know that they were watching me and they were supporting me. Um, they even had a kind of uh, mirthful sense of humor. I described in my book, um, a vision that I had when I woke up at 3.33 a.m. of a bunch of these sort of shadow beings. You know, they looked like the um, the little shadows that, that Mary Martin pieced together in that television show of uh, 
Peter Pan, you know, and uh, dancing around. And, um, you know, one of them sat on uh, some pillows that was, you know, in the corner of a room and, and assumed the pose of Rodan Stinker. And I, so I mentally said to this uh, person, uh, are you telling me that I'm thinking too much? And he nodded his head. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And the other ones were like dancing around. And I was saying to them, are you telling me I need to go out and have, dance and have some fun? And they nodded their head. So, because it's true, because I went at it like a tear, you know, I really got on a tear. Uh, it was just like going full bore. And um, they were telling me to lighten up and, you know, have some fun. So, so I did try to do that. And I'm very grateful that, that I did. And, um, so, um, and I want to, at this point also acknowledge, um, my good friend, uh, Rocio Marquez to whom I dedicated the first edition of my book, who came into that, into my life at that time. And, um, she, she worked at the Mexican, uh, cultural Institute and she was just a wonderful friend and um, companion asked me lots of questions, loved to talk with me about the book, which was fantastic because I had been finding that, um, well, I have to say, I mean, I wrote about this in the book. Um, I went through a huge change when I decided to do the book. Um, my father had just died and I was very sad because I had been on a business trip in New York and um uh, with my then wife, um, and I wasn't able to be with him when he died. And, um, and my first wife, uh, Lucila was really opposed to my doing the book and, um, thought I should be a respectable doctoral student and get a PhD like she was doing. And I really didn't want to do that. Um, I didn't want to climb the academic ladder and go teach in Nebraska or wherever I would get a job. And um, I liked being in San Antonio. I liked being a writer, and I wanted to do this book. And I felt like I was the perfect person to do it. So we separated. So uh, I was sad about that, too. But um, but it was you know clear to me that she she wanted to get her Ph.D. and go wherever it would take her. And, and she went far with it, and I'm very glad for her. But um, and I'm so glad that I did the book because it presented me with an extraordinary opportunity for growth and um, in particular in becoming more comfortable with the idea that we live in this universe where there's a lot of support and guidance for us um, once we get onto the path. And so I found my way uh, just like unfolding before me. Um, I was, I, 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 I reached out to Ellen Levine, uh, in New York, um, who was at that time, uh, Garrison Keillor's agent. She had been Ray Bradbury's agent and she took me on, you know, I was this guy from Texas, you know, from this podunk paper, the express news, you know, and, uh, in San Antonio. And, you know, when I first met her, um, uh, she was kind of, you know, of the impression that Texans were all like Larry McMurtry and that we, you know, wore cowboy boots, drove trucks and ate nothing but barbecue, you know. <laughs> so I, I went there wearing a double-breasted wool suit and told her I'd grown up in New Rochelle and she was kind of amazed. Oh, you are partly a New Yorker. So so I got I got accepted by her and she sold my, my book to um, William Marlin Company and Avon in a dual 
uh, hardback paperback um, deal, and that gave me the um, the time and the money I needed to basically devote about a year of my life to going to UFO conferences and you know going back and forth to New York several times to see Whitley, going up to his cabin, and um, you know and getting to know sort of the who's who in the UFO world. Um, not all of them liked me, you know. Bud Hopkins took a big dislike to me because, you know, I um, I publicized what I found in Whitley's, Whitley's point of view. And um, at that time, they were not on the same page at all. I'm glad to know Whitley told me years later that they did reconcile, which is great. Um, you know, you get older and you see things differently. But um, there's no doubt that, 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 you know, Hopkins felt quite chapped by the fact that, Whitley's book became this massive bestseller, probably the best-selling UFO book of the 20th century, and his book, Intruders, was lost in the dust. So, um, and that's not to say... That easily, I, I would say easily, Whitley's book is holds that spot. Yeah, um, yeah it was the most impactful book in, in, in every way. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, and, and, and in the course of doing my um, work, um, you know, I I also encountered some of the, uh, I, I guess I contracted what you could call UFO researcher's disease in that I had this uh, infestation of black helicopters uh, coming around my building all the time and helicopters following me uh, in my car and, um, uh, you know, people in Air Force uniforms walking by my building from time to time, which was very odd in downtown San Antonio. Um, and, um, you know, just at, well, all the checks that I wrote for um, UFO expenses uh, came back later in separate envelopes, sometimes with little, you know, certificates on them saying, open for administrative purposes. Um, yeah kind of weird so I knew that I was under surveillance and at first it really freaked me out but then I just got used to it <laughs> like anybody who gets into this business it's going to be of interest to somebody whose job it is to keep tabs on you and and while the black helicopters were um, at first um, you know um, kind of upsetting uh, and I was wondering if they were like projecting electromagnetic waves at me, you know, a la, you know, what happened to employees at, you know, the Cuban American intersection or in the American embassy in, in Moscow. I didn't find my hair falling out or anything like that. So um, I was seemingly, you know, I was, I was surviving, but um, that certainly added a, a certain um, cloak and dagger aspect to what I was doing at times. I had black um, helicopters over my house in upstate New York after I started to have um, ships show up. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, my first experience was a massive close encounters ship in silently gliding by my bedroom window at three in the morning. And Wonderful. I actually had the FBI taking photos um, in front of my house. So I, I know of what you speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Years later, when 
uh, <laughs> I was living in a quiet neighborhood in San Antonio, uh, one of my neighbors came to tell me that he had been awakened by seeing this massive ship over our house at 3 a.m. in the morning, and it had illuminated the entire neighborhood. And it had even, he had this huge parabolic uh, antenna because he was like a, a, a satellite TV junkie. And it had actually moved his antenna several degrees towards it. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. But anyhow, there, there you know, there are always, um, yeah, they're, they're there, you know, and that's their job, you know, and, and that's fine. You know, I, I'm not going to interfere with their paycheck. But, um, you know, it was certainly um, a... Um, an educational experience. I'd always thought that there was something going on here. And I always thought that there must be some kind of intelligence apparatus, you know, paying attention to it and trying to make sense out of it. Um, I never thought that I would be, you know, a part of the process. And, um, yeah. So, but maybe we should talk well, a little bit about Whitley and, and how I saw Whitley in this period of time. I'm sure people would be interested in, in that. Would that be a good direction for me to go? Absolutely. Absolutely. But before we do that, we're going to take our second commercial break. So be right back. All right. Thank you. Welcome back to the show. So Ed, continue. Yeah. Let's talk about Whitley. Yeah. I'd like to give people some perspective on like my impressions of Whitley when I first met him and how, um, my knowledge of him deepened as he invited me into exploring further um, his life. Uh, so it should be said that Whitley comes from, uh, Whitley has deep roots in, in San Antonio and South Texas. Um, on one side of his family, they go back to the Canary Islanders and the Canary Islanders were people from Spain who were um, given titles and land in the area of San Antonio and so made their way from the Canary Islands, which were kind of a desolate outpost anyhow of the Spanish Empire, to an even more desolate outpost of San Antonio in the, in the Condado de Bejar, you know, the county of Bear. And um, so, but, you know, they were remarkable people and they prospered. And um, so, uh, you know, I have to say that Whitley, uh, as I was saying, you know, to you earlier before the interview, Whitley opened, you know, made a point of not interfering with my question asking process. He gave me the names of a lot of people who he would like me to uh, speak with. And um, so I, I did. I talked to his high school English teacher. I talked to friends in the neighborhood. Um, I talked to, you know, of course, his mother, I talked to his brother, his father is deceased. And I, you know, spoke with, you know, just, just a whole slew of people who, who had known Whitley over the years. And, uh, and in addition to that, I spoke with Dr. Uh, you know, Donald Klein, who was the uh, head of the New York State Psychiatric Institute, who had given, you know, who had consulted with Whitley and given him tests, um, I talked with Matt Lorendi, who was the guy who gave him a polygraph test. I, uh, you know, and then later I talked with 
a wide range of people who were experts in one way or another, uh, you know, about about this phenomenon, um, and in order to get some perspective on it, um, historically, um, in terms of the American, you know, ufological movement, shall we say, and other researchers, you know, such as you know Heineck and so forth, and their organizations like Kufos and MUFON, and so I sort of, so I, I, I quickly put together um, this structure of a book that was um, facilitated in every way by by Whitley actively saying to me through the course of my research, oh, you know, you ought to talk to this person too, or you ought to talk to that person. And he was, so he provided a lot of guidance um, that was extremely helpful. And as I said, he didn't, he was very ethical. He did not speak to a lot of these people whom, who had had extraordinary experiences with him or on their own in his neighborhood when he grew up, because there was quite a lot of extraordinary activity happening at night and sometimes during the day in his um, neighborhood in San Antonio, which by the way, um, is, uh, is it's, it's near this place called the Almas Basin, O-L-M-O-S Basin. And, um, it's, it's a, you know, it, it is a, it is a basin for, for water. You know, it's, it's an area where a lot of it is just parkland because it's, you know, you can't, you can't build anything there because it floods. And, um, so, uh, but it has, you know, very extraordinary energies, uh, you know, earth energies there. And it had, had a lot of, you know, indigenous inhabitants there. Uh, you know, there are archeological digs that have gone on there that are found habitations. So anyhow, uh, I really respected that about Whitley because um, he, it's like he wanted to find out what he couldn't find out through me. And, and I of course wanted to find it out for the sake of my readers, you know? Um, and, and people at the time would ask me if I was being skeptical and, you know, my response was that I was trying to, um, be rationally skeptical um you know of course i couldn't take everything on face value i had to sift and weigh. i had to create a sense of you know historical context social context um psychological context from what i could learn about his upbringing you know his parents his family life but i was going to try to be i but i but i critiqued people who i call the irrational skeptics and in my opinion, the irrational skeptics still today are those people who simply take an a priori position that these kind of phenomena simply cannot happen and do not happen. And therefore, you know, people who purport to say something about them are just, you know, you know, crazy, you know, and making irresponsible statements. And, you know, that, you know, that's the kind of, you know, there, there were a fair number of people who were practicing that kind of skepticism in those days. Um, Philip J. Class, the late Philip J. Class, may he rest in peace, in my opinion. Uh, I met him uh, once at a conference. You know, a very decent man, but a man of very strong, in my opinion, intellectual prejudices. And, you know, I don't know what satisfaction he got 
out of like, you know, reporting on strange stuff and trying to skewer it all the time. But that was appeared to be his, his hobby, you know? So, um, anyhow, um, but I met many other, you know, legitimate, you know, researchers. I met Stanton Friedman who, uh, used to go around the country debating class and I certainly respected him. He's the guy who brought forth the MJ 12 documents and did a lot of other work. And, you know, numerous other people going to conferences was very educational for me. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, I tried to get this, um, together this profile of Whitley, you know, as a person who, um, as a child had this reputation for being a real trickster. He loved to pull pranks on people. And, um, you know, he, he, he had, he even made the newspaper about that. He, he, that, that was the age of Sputnik, you know, uh, in the late fifties when he was a kid and he made the headlines by, um, uh, putting into space a quote, Frognik, unquote. They had, he and his friends had gotten a model rocket and they put a frog into the cone. Oh my God. (laughs) And they they blasted it up into the sky and it came down and it must've been a very slow news day. (laughs) Or other, it made made the paper. But, uh, I also noted in my book that in those days, there seemed to be no inhibition about writing about UFOs because the Express News actually did report on a UFO that a bunch of a bunch of reporters saw from the window of their location at Avenue E and Third Street, and you know reported on it, and it was you know front page news, and they called it the Whatnik. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Whatnik seen over San Antonio. So um, anyhow, uh, yeah, uh, you know. And, and so there's so there was this tension, you know, in the story, uh, ipso facto, between Whitley's, you know, reputation locally as being this trickster, and the new Whitley, the you know, gentleman who had uh, changed from being an advertising executive to being a successful fiction writer to then being a writer of a true nonfiction story given his background in advertising a lot of people ipso facto you know didn't you know think that he was a reliable source shall we say but the more I got to know Whitley and the more I could tell that he was in dead earnest about this and um, and also I realized that there was another side of him that people didn't know and that side which actually I which I wish I had um, written about more was his um, spiritual education in the Gurdjieff Foundation in uh, New York. Um, G.I. Gurdjieff, um, G-U-R-D-J-M-E-F-F, was a, a man from the European region of Georgia who uh, made literary and social history uh, through his books uh, Beelzebub's tales with, to his grandchildren and uh, meetings with remarkable men, and he started the Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man outside of Paris in Fontainebleau, uh, 
with uh, a bunch of leading, you know, intellectuals and artists of the 30s um, around him, teaching uh, what he purported to have learned in mystery schools in the Himalayas and other remote locations um, about, you know, techniques for meditation and for the, um, you know, elevation of consciousness. And uh, so Whitley was a part of this group in uh, New York, and so he brought to his work this meditative background and an awareness that consciousness is a variable, you know, that we can approach different kinds of phenomena that occur in our lives with very low levels of consciousness or very high levels of consciousness of awareness of capacity for awareness and concentration you know for self-centeredness and so forth and so he he definitely brought that to his work and he talked about that um he he talked about that in a in a speech he gave at the angels aliens and archetypes conference in san francisco in november of 1987 where i first saw him at work, so to speak, publicly. And, uh, you know, so I, I respected that about him. And that was why he, in the book communion, talked about it in terms of um, Jungian uh, psychology and also in terms of the fairy faith in Celtic countries. Uh, and I found those two uh, areas of a simile that he used to explain it very interesting because yes of course Jacques Vallée had already introduced uh, this concept of the phenomenon being related to the fairy faith but Whitley did it in a in a different way in my with all due respect to Jacques uh, with um, his accounts of of the personal very personal encounters of abductions and he did that by talking about an abduction of Conla, son, first son of the first king of Ireland, Con, the great high king of Ireland in the first century AD, who was apparently abducted into a gleaming silver kurag, a kurag, also known as a coracle, and its Latin uh, version is um, a little round uh, vehicle, often made out of skins um, with a circular lath, and is used to sort of scud around on the waters with, with a pole. Well, so a gleaming silver kurag came down, and a fairy maiden came out of it, told Kanla that she was in love with him and wanted him to come with her. Well, he didn't come at first because the queen, king brought down his druids, and they made her go away. But a month later, she came back, and, and he went away with her. And he pointed out this story uh, had seemed to have some documentation because of the royal annals in which no errors are made. Uh, there was an entry for his birth, but not an entry for his death. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so he brought in all kinds of stuff like that. And, and then that, that brought me into um, looking at it um, in reference to um, Renaissance magic and, um, and also the work of Aleister Crowley out of the Golden Dawn. And so in my book, um, I compare some of the magical operations, shall we say, that Whitley was engaged in with the encounters of um, Dr. John Dee, um, 
court astrologer to Elizabeth I and Edward Kelly uh, with, you know, extraordinary beings, and also to the um, descriptions of a being by the name of the Lamb, L-A-M, that um, Crowley said he was in contact with and who he drew with an appearance very similar to the kinds of beings that people today call the greys. And so, so I go into um, Crowley's invocation of uh, the demon Koranzon, um, in my book, um, which involved the crossing of the abyss on the Kabbalistic tree of life. Because in many ways, I saw what Whitley was trying to do as similar as a spiritual enterprise in that he was trying to literally cross an abyss and go into a realm of human experience, conscious communion with the visitors uh, that perhaps no other, quote, abductee, unquote, had ever done before. And, you know, perhaps they had, but nobody had ever written about it in the English language, I think, in the manner in which he did. So that is historic, and um, that is very significant. And I think that's one of the reasons why Whitley had, in the long range, such a um, profound cultural impact um, I once had dinner with a gentleman who was the originator of the, um, uh, you know, the the um, series, you know, um, uh, you know, with Scully and, and Mulder, and you know, he he said, yeah, Whitley was the you know inspiration for our whole series, and um, you know that that led to, and, and of course, his image from the cover became like the stereotypical alien image in New Yorker cartoons and, and everything ever since. And um, so, uh, you know, it's just he's had a, not only this influence on individual people, but, you know, this huge cultural impact. He's had an enormous impact. Um, and now our, our society is kind of catching up to him. I hope so. You know, um, certainly the um, New York Times articles in December of 2017 by Helene Cooper, Leslie King, and Ralph Blumenthal about the um, secret UFO or, you know, UAP, um, you know, research uh, project at the Pentagon, uh, together with the videos that they released, had an enormous impact um, in getting people aware of this. Um, I guess the New York Times still has some impact <laughs> yes. and, you know, even though it's discounted by so many people uh, you know for a variety of reasons but you know I really respect the work that they did that was great reporting and the follow-up reporting that was done about you know the changes in Navy regulations um, allowing pilots to speak of their um, encounters with UAPs that was huge and and I know how huge that is because one of the things that happened to me spontaneously in San Antonio when I was starting to do my research is that Air Force people would sometimes seek me out to tell me about their stories. Retired Air Force officers told me some of the most extraordinary stories of their encounters with UFOs while on duty, while in the air, while flying in jets. And, um, 
you know, and, and another one uh, happened when I was having my hair cut. This gentleman who was my hairdresser, uh, my barber, uh, told me that his father had been a, 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 a military policeman at Camp Bullis in San Antonio, Texas, uh, back in the 1960s, and that um, in the middle of the night, a bunch of uh, three, three large flatbed trucks showed up with uh, tarps over what looked like crashed flying saucers. There were these, you know, oval-shaped vehicles that were, you know, covered up. And he let them in the gate. And his, his, oh, wow. His, yeah, this gentleman said that um, his father was then subjected to basically uh, bullying, profound psychological torture, and told that if he said a word about this to anybody, that, you know, that terrible things that happened to him and his family. And so uh, his son said that his father became an alcoholic and he could never tell why until finally, literally on his deathbed, his father made this confession to him and told him the story, which he was very eager to tell me because he said he hadn't really told anybody about it but because he, he wasn't sure that they'd believe him. But he said that he thought I would believe him. And I said, well, I do believe you. And it took him some courage to do it because obviously it was an extremely traumatic matter. And I know another person, a data processing person who had been in the Navy who saw, you know, something off the side of his ship and he likewise was bullied. Now these were enlisted men. The officers that told me their stories did not tell me that they had been bullied by other officers. But, um, so I'm not so sure how that, you know, worked, but certainly rank did appear to have a lot to do with it. Um, but I'm sure that there are many, many other incidents like that, uh, where, you know, well, perhaps you know, pilots and enlisted men and women were, you know, scared to death to talk about these things. So, um, you know, and I'm sure a lot, and, and, and many other people in ordinary life have been scared to death, you know, to talk about these things uh, for fear of losing, you know, the love of their, you know, spouses, respect of their colleagues. You know, there was a tremendous onus on this. And I think one of the things that Whitley really accomplished and that I hope people will recognize him for is that he, he made it cool to talk about this stuff. You know, it's like it didn't totally change everything for everyone. But as he's written, suddenly there were thousands of people writing him and Anne letters, so many that they had to hire an assistant to go through them. Lori Barnes, who had been a lifetime experiencer herself and happened to live around the corner in Greenwich Village, saw their ad. She became their uh, secretary and a dear friend of the family and a dear friend of mine. I got to know her over the years. And <laughs> a woman from a showbiz family in New York who made her debut at the age of three, perched atop an elephant uh, on, on the stage <laughs> of a Broadway theater in Dumbo with Jimmy Durante. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> she That's sounds more, great. Yeah. Oh, she was something else. Yeah. Her, her parents knew the doily cart people and all of that. I mean, they were just amazing. So anyhow, she, um, yeah, she's, she, may she rest in peace. She's an amazing woman. And yeah, so, um, yeah, lifetime witness to them. And so like, yeah, like 
by these invisible threads of magnetism, you know, all of these people, um, you know, came together and, and had these experiences through Whitley. And, um, you know, as the time is probably growing short for my interview, I should say a few things about his magical cabin. Would you like me to comment on that? That would be terrific. Yes, definitely, Ed. And, and, um, and also if there's a, a way to just bring in some of the experiences that you had there as well, um, yeah, sure, uh, that would be yeah. that would be great. Um, we are going to invite you back to continue this discussion uh, in a part two because we do want to get into uh, the her- hermetic order and some other topics with you that this hour has flown by. Okay, well, thank you. Sure. Well, okay. So um, Whitley had two residences in upstate New York. Um, the first was the original cabin where the original events that he described um, in communion took place. It was a lovely place, uh, not far from the town of New Paltz, um, you know, the Hudson River Valley, um, which is kind of a magical place in its own right, you know, um, you know, with, uh, you know, stories of time travel, you know, like Rip Van Winkle and so forth and all those black triangular UFOs that go up and down the Hudson from time to time. But um, he, so he invited people to come to, uh, you know, to gather there and um, people who had had experiences, who had written to him. And uh, we had a number of of really remarkable, lovely gatherings. Uh, Anne and Whitley were very hospitable, generous hosts, wonderful food and and fellowship around the dinner table telling stories. and gathering out in the evenings, uh, he had sort of this uh, mini Stonehenge circle of big rocks with uh, a big crystal buried under a copper plate in the middle where we'd go to meditate. And once I was out there and this big, huge orange sphere started coming by uh, in the woods. And perhaps the most extraordinary experience that I had um, in that area was just a little far to beyond that circle in a clearing. I was with um, my late ex-wife, Dora, Dora Ruffner, and another friend, Whitley and um, Andrew. And it was a moonless night, um, and Whitley had actually said to us, I have a feeling that something's going to happen. So we went from the comfortable living room out into the chilly night and um, we were, I was looking out towards the north and uh, toward a line of trees that was um, on the horizon when suddenly I saw this enormous globe of white light that just popped into existence. And having been raised a Catholic, for some reason or another, I said to myself, that looks like an enormous communion wafer. But... <laughs> <laughs> and you know, but I don't know why I thought that, but you know, weird weird thoughts come into your head sometimes when these things happen. And then this thing began to glow and then suddenly it burst into um this incredible flash of light that was like an enormous photographer's strobe that 
froze us in position, and I could clearly see the, the shadows of Whitley and Andrew and Dora and the other person outlined, you know, in, you know, on the, on the earth. It was just absolutely extraordinary. And then, because I was looking in that direction, I saw the light seem to recede back into this globe of white light. And then in another instant, it compressed into a tiny little ruby red light that then took off at a 45 degree angle. And it's very hard to describe what I then saw because it appeared to me that this little ruby red, intensely red light stopped and started, stopped and started. It sort of scudded across the sky and it created this sort of washboard effect of rippling waves of energy that were like a ladder of, of, of residue of energy or something as it had, as it made its way up into infinity. And it was absolutely the most extraordinary visual phenomenon I've ever witnessed. Um, left me with absolutely no doubt that, you know, something's going on here. And I was already convinced, but that was an amazing display. And um, then Whitley will, will be amused if I tell this story because he was very amused when I was told it to him. So I had this dream, a vivid dream, that uh, in which I was um, in the middle of the night out on the deck behind Whitley's house. They had a, a deck and they had a jacuzzi on the deck. It was a large deck. And on the, um, uh, on the deck was a Toyota sports car, which was very much like a sports car that I was thinking of buying. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I got into this car, and um, then suddenly um, I saw myself inside the car uh, taking off and going up, up, up <clears throat> into the heavens, towards the stars and I had, you know, sort of this Star Trek like, you know, feeling of like, you know, going into hyperdrive and all the stars, you know, uh, you know, streaming past me as lines of light. And that was the end of the dream, as far as I can remember. Wow. I go back and explore that hypnosis. Yeah. Um, there were other things that happened that were extraordinary. Once I was, um, with a friend who um, was uh, sleeping with me, and um, we we awakened because um, she was seeing um, a person who was her deceased uh, cousin from Mexico City, who had died during the 1984 earthquake in Mexico City. And what was extraordinary about it was that she was holding before her a tattered sweater. And I asked my friend what the significance of that was to her. And she said, that's so amazing because she had been so mutilated when they recovered her body that the only means by which they were able to identify her was the sweater that she was wearing. Oh, wow. Her family, yeah. Yeah, so um, so that was very interesting because um, the presence of the dead um, 
is a big theme in this, um, you know, in this business. Um, Whitley's written about it a lot, uh, most particularly lately with the afterlife revolution. But it's something that was that he was aware of from the very beginning. Uh, he felt that some of the visitors are engaged in the transport of souls after death from one place to another. And so that was a very interesting experience. Um, and there are many, many other experiences that others, you know, have related. And of course, Whitney has written about them, but those were some of the most salient ones for me. Yeah. Well, you've had, um, a whole vast, you know, collection. You have a whole vast collection of experiences, to refer to as as well as all the research that you've done in this area, not just for your book on Whitley but and communion, but um, on your own personal journey. So thank you so much for joining us today, Ed, and we look forward to having you back to uh, continue this discussion very soon. I I'm and I know the audience is too very much interested in, in hearing more about, about your own life and, and your path, because, um, you know, it's kind of no coincidence that we've all found ourselves here on unknown country and connected to Whitley, um, in, in some way. And he's been such a catalyst for bringing like-minded people together, uh, and sharing information. Yeah, it's a, a huge contribution. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Mia. And um, I appreciate the attention of anyone who's listening. And um, I'm happy to, you know, answer questions. I can be reached at econroy53 at gmail.com. Of course, Google will be listening to anything we write. But um <laughs> Well, we'll post care. that with um, with your bio okay. and and the Thank and you. the interview, so people will know how to get a hold of you. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, thanks, Mia, and I look forward to the next interview. Me too, Ed. Take care. Bye for now. Okay. Adios. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.